Out of the box. Meet people through their music. With Ash Bertabez on FBI. Big thanks to Ed. What a glorious morning full of tunes for you. And if you want to check out any of the ones that he played, you can do so on the FBI Radio website under programs and playlists. He's doing mornings for Stephen Ferris, who's not here today. I wonder why. Probably dancing. Andrew Quilty is my guest today. He's a photojournalist and he's been in Afghanistan for the best part of the last year. Being in a place of ongoing conflict, you'd expect Andrew's photos to be of violence, wreckage, and the kind of things you see in so much war reporting, but most often than not. His most striking images, I think, are of civilians in those almost incongruous moments of harmony that fall in most photographers' periphery. And this guy sitting across from me just won the Nikon Walkley Award for his work. Woo! And, uh, well, you got two. Press Photographer of the Year and for Photo of the Year. Congratulations. Thank you, Ash. So did you end up going and getting a suit for the event or did you just go in your year 12 suit? <laughs> uh, it was a combination of my year 12 suit, uh, a new shirt and some brown boots with dust fresh from Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> Very fitting. So I, I hear you're an atrocious DJ. Mm. I'm a little bit worried about the tunes. <laughs> no, I think I think we've got a lot of good songs coming up in the hour, but you have had a few, uh, you know, a bad experience DJing. What happened? I had a bad experience DJing? Yeah, in Afghanistan. Oh, yes. Thanks for reminding me. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I cleared the dance floor one night when I got fed up with the um, the Euro dance mix that was going on and uh, and um, took it over with some Rolling Stones and, yeah, wasn't wasn't well appreciated at all. So it's nice to be here and have, have the reins for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Oh, well, let's just say expats just have poor taste. So... Uh, Andrew has been included in the Huffington Post's 26 brilliant Instagram accounts that will change your worldview, which is you know, one of those very grandiose titles that they always have. But, you know, I absolutely agree with their assessment. And I encourage you, if you're listening, to check out his account during the next song. It's one word, Andrew Quilty, and uh, definitely worth checking it out. Amazing, gorgeous stuff. My favourite Instagram account. And uh, the first track is by PJ Harvey. Which one do we have? Silence from mm. White Chalk. And why? Oh, I've had a long affection for, for PJ, um, and this one is one of her uh, more mournful tunes. Um, I think I, I love her music across the whole spectrum, from the, the, the mournful to the to the rock and roll, and um, this is just one I couldn't pass up the opportunity to play. On FBI 94.5, my guest today, Andrew Quilty. All those places where I recall Somehow expect you 
Stunning stuff from PJ Harvey. Silence is the name of that track. Brought in by my guest today, Andrew Quilty. Thank you for bringing that in. Pleasure. Can we play it again? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> back to back for the next hour. You've got Silence by PJ Harvey. An hour of silence. Uh, so, you have been back in Sydney after being in Afghanistan for upwards of a year. You just got back past couple of weeks mm-hmm. specifically for the walkleys was it or was it you know oh i was coming home for the the family and christmas and whatnot for christmas uh, and i uh, brought it forward a bit for the for the walkleys yeah. oh lovely um so you've taught me more than the news ever has about afghanistan how about that <laughs> it's like mm, not... <laughs> just through your instagram account no but seriously i mm-hmm. mean you know you never really learn anything about the country through mm-hmm. the news mm-hmm. and i remember your first post was you know, taken through a window of a car and you're saying, oh, there's these two boys, they've got, you know, they've got these balloons and there's like, amazing scenes of civilian life everywhere, but they say it's not advisable to get out of the car in Kabul. Did that change over time? Yeah, it definitely changed. Um, and that was my own ignorance, I think. Um, when I first arrived in Afghanistan, well, even before I'd arrived, flying into Kabul International Airport, I was expecting to get blown out of the sky before I even landed. And then I was very nervous about um, walking the streets and being in public, but, um, you know, slowly sort of got acclimatised and became more comfortable and, and you know, worked out how to uh, purport myself in, in public and, and negotiate those sort of common everyday scenarios, yeah. Lovely. So were you, were you living mostly in Kabul? Are you based in a certain place? What's your house like? Oh, I've got a nice house. Um, I live with a bunch of expats. We've got a couple of dogs, uh, two cats, maybe one at last count, actually, a couple of chickens, <laughs> a hammock and roses and um, veggie garden. It's very, it's all very civilised, actually. Um, it just so happens to be behind a, you know, 12-foot high concrete wall with razor wire on top and <laughs> and all that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, like life can be quite normal there, um, but it's... It's never long before you're kind of brought back to exactly where you are with, um, you know, the the various um, forms of attacks you hear with, within and without. Yeah, so in, in that case, like, are you living only with expats or are you kind of still in the community or is it kind of a fenced off? No, no, it's not a, a compound at all. We're in a, a suburban street. Um, there's a big divide between, for example, embassies and some of the uh, NGOs that mm. work there who are... Um, extremely security conscious and, I mean, to the point that, um, you know, advisors on local custom for the UN 
um, and I'm not even exaggerating here, um, in some cases haven't even met an Afghan. Um, so it's um, uh, it's quite a luxury to, to have the freedom as, as a freelancer in particular um, and not have to answer to, to people and security advisors and, and that sort of thing. Well, mm. if you ever want to go for that job, you'd probably be a better advisor in local custom. Maybe I would. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you actually, have you met quite a few locals? Do you ever go back and check on anyone? You know, are there, are there friends that are locals in? in yeah, local? there are. It, it's, unfortunately, it's not a, a simple matter Um being, you know, making making friends. Um, I mean, particularly, I mean, the idea of finding a, an Afghan girlfriend or, or wife, for example, is it's just fraught with um, with difficulties um, that are, you know, almost not worth worth juggling. Um, and you know, just just sort of cultural differences that are, you know, that is not insurmountable, and and plenty of people do. Um, bridge that gap, and um, and I know, know many beautiful, wonderful Afghans. Um, and yeah, I certainly have have friends, but it's um, it's definitely definitely a difficult um, bridge to to uh, sorry gap to bridge. Yeah, mm. you you actually did uh, you did manage to take a photo of I don't know I can't remember what her name was, but the Juliet of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. There's a Romeo and Juliet kind of story. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, there's plenty of these stories, unfortunately, in Afghanistan where there's this sort of unrequited love between um, tribal groups or ethnic, uh, divided along ethnic lines where a um, a Hazara, um, a girl of Hazara ethnicity, fell in love with a a boy, um, I think he was a, a Tajik of Tajik descent. And the families didn't agree upon this marriage, and uh, so they were they were forced to flee, and um, and have been basically chased by the um, by the boy's family, extended family ever since, and um, have been you know threatened with with death, and because it's uh, dishonouring the the family's name. Imagine that. Mm. We've got a song to take at the moment by the drones. Now, what what do the drones in Afghanistan like? Why do they sit together for you? Uh, well, they don't sit together at all. But <laughs> the drones, I suppose, um, for me, are the a link, a musical link back to Australia. They really, I mean, they're kind of my um, modern Midnight Oil or you know Cold Chisel, even just the all their references and the the really grungy um, uh, sort of take on on a modern Australian culture and. Um, all, all their references to places and um, Australiana is just—it's just—it's raw and rough, and I love it for that reason. From treetops down candle white roofs While rain towels drown the morning song Magpie with a model tongue And they only ever treat you well When you're nothing but a church I'm 
Out of the box on FBR 94.5. My name's Ash Berdebez and my guest today is Andrew Quilty who brought in that track. Who was it again? The Drones. Oh, so good. Can never get sick of that song. Uh, and so often on your Instagram account where you post a lot of photos from the past year that you spent in Afghanistan, you don't see the conflict. We don't see, you know, scenes of war, any, you know, horrific injuries or anything like that. We see the peace and then you write about the conflict. So it kind of makes... It kind of makes the conflict seem peripheral. When you're in Afghanistan, does it kind of feel peripheral to you? Yes, no. I think there's... Um, th that's one thing I love about Afghanistan is that you're living in the story. Whereas here in Australia, it's very easy to go home at night and 
uh, go back to your, you know, easy, comfortable life. Um, but in Afghanistan, you're, you're constantly living it. Um, you walk out on the street and you're in the story. Um, I suppose for one part because of the, the danger aspect that um, is apparent, not just for me, obviously, but just for the everyday Afghan who, who has lived with it for literally three or four decades. Um, but also in, in the sense that, um, the historical sense that um, what is happening today has, um, has occurred in, in similar ways in, in the past. And there's a lot of references you can draw from the past um, that, are, that can be seen in what is happening today. Uh, so I like to draw, uh, draw you know, lines between those you know, yeah. historic, historical aspects and, and the present. I guess an example of, of one of the photos I, I kind of mean when you've you know, got peace within conflict, it, it's almost eerie. There's a photo that you've taken of a young boy and he has just an old man's hands either side of his head. What's happening in this scene? That was uh, in a, a province about two hours from Kabul and um, myself and a couple of journalists had, had uh, organised to be taken into this uh, district that had been very heavily contested between Taliban and the Afghan National Army. And on the way to get there, the uh, armoured convoy that was to escort us in was attacked. Um, they were blown up by an IED and two um, armoured hum Humvees were destroyed. The local district governor was um, wounded and um, we were travelling with the, uh, the district police chief who needed to get to the, the scene of this battle to conduct his, his troops. So we ended up in this, um, this firefight between Taliban and, and Afghan security forces. And along with us were um, a handful of vi villagers who had been caught in the, in the crossfire as well, um, one of whom was this three-year-old boy named Jawad, um, who, who was standing there with his, his dad, actually his uncle behind him, and his uncle had uh, his his two index fingers in his in his nephew's ears to to block out the the gunfire and the grenade um, grenade and uh, artillery fire that was, was coming from all sides. And it was, I mean, that to me is, was a was the lasting image from that day, and um, I think very evocative of that of that um, the nature of uh, the impact of, of conflict on the on the everyday Afghan. I get the feeling that most pho photographers and most photojournalists would have been focusing their lens on the conflict. Mm. Is war not kind of interesting to you or not as interesting to you? Oh, no. It, I mean, it is. I can't deny that there's a, um, a pull of, you know, conflict. I mean, people who are so dedicated to their cause that they'll, they were happy to kill another man um, for it, there's there's something undeniably um, I don't know what the word is, but um, as a photographer, it's something that is is hard not to not to want to capture or try to mm. capture. Yeah. So, what aesthetically, you know, as a photographer, what aesthetically is there about Afghanistan that makes it appealing? The landscape in Afghanistan is spectacular. It's um, a lot of high desert with um, 
dusty plains and high jagged mountains with these beautiful lush green valleys with um, rivers flowing through them and you know fields of cauliflowers and corn and it, it's a very spectacular backdrop um, to, to photograph anything against. Fantastic. So we'll talk in a second about how you got started out in photography, but first a track. Uh, how about we go with Radio Birdman? Let's. And uh, we'll find out why after this song.
so good. Yeah. Uh, Radio Birdman. And why did you want to bring Radio Birdman into the studio today? Radio Birdman is kind of indicative of a bunch of mostly guys who influenced me heavily in my in the beginning of my career and I suppose the the formative years of my life um, after high school. Um, there, are, there are a bunch of guys that worked at uh, the Sydney Morning Herald when I started to do some work experience there and at that time I, I didn't know what sort of photography I was interested in. I could just as easily have ended up as an advertising photographer or a fashion photographer, God forbid. <laughs> I can't, I can't <laughs> no imagine. Offense. It doesn't fit you. <laughs> Um, Aerial shots of food, not on your Instagram. <laughs> um, but I, it just so happened that I started hanging out with these guys, um, friends, uh, you know, people have become great friends and mentors like um, Dean Sewell and Mick Seekers, Dean Lewins, Chris Hyde, these guys who are, are well known in, in the um, you know, photography community in Australia and, and people have, across Australia have probably all seen pictures of theirs. But they really, um, you know, through take me along to see bands like Radio Birdman kind of turned me into the much of the person I am today. So that song, Descent into the Maelstrom, did you see them play that live? Several times, yes. <laughs> yeah, we, I, I've become part of this group that rarely uh, misses or never misses a, a Radio Birdman gig. Yeah? yeah? What are they like live? Oh, awesome. What do yeah. you like when they're live? <laughs> oh, it's it's not often that I'll get on the dance floor, but Radio Birdman certainly brings it out of me. Right. And so these, these photographers that you're talking about, were they also at all into surf photography? Was that kind of you at the time? Not really, no. Surf photography was something that I came to because I was surfing, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And it kind of coincided with my interest in photography. And it was a, a, um, a you know, easy sort of confluence of, of passions. And um, so I started... Uh, I bought myself a underwater camera housing and um, started taking pictures of my friends and, you know, trips up and down the coast and around Australia and things. And, um, you know, I, I started getting a couple of pictures published there. But um, I suppose those friends who are more traditional photojournalists um, had more sway on me and I, I sort of tended to more towards uh, the sort of work that they were doing. Yeah, I guess... I mean, being able to say, oh, it was a really cool wave and I took a photo of it is different to being like, oh, yeah, and then I met this really famous person and did a, f- a photo of them or, you know, this really critical moment in our history and yeah. took a photo of that. It's yeah. a little bit different. I still, I mean, I still look at surfing photography and and think it's some of the most incredible um, photography, you know, work with a camera that, that you see and, um, you know, <laughs> these guys arguably put a lot put themselves at a lot more danger than I do even in Afghanistan so um, yeah it's incredible what they can do. So you went around Australia on a big trip taking a bunch of photos Mm -hmm. and you've turned that into a a short film is that did you do that Um, or is it did you make a book? No not really I did that in Mexico but Australia was um, sort of before my career started Um, but I did have a camera. All right well we'll take a track for the moment and uh, come back and talk a little bit about how you got started out in the big time, I, I suppose. So, Snuff. Who was Snuff? Snuff are this uh, English punk band who made several appearances on surfing movies of the sort of 1990s. Um, and one in particular, um, Kelly Slater in Colour, which was this 
with this movie that me and my mates would always watch before we'd go out surfing and to, to psych up and while we're waxing up our boards and, you know, we'd all go out thinking we're going to go out and surf like Kelly. <laughs> Great. So it's off the album Demo Musa Bebonk. And the song is called Vikings. I don't know whether they just took a lot of drugs or really like Sweden. I never knew how to pronounce that. <laughs> we tried. I can't remember how to do it. <laughs> can't remember how to surf. Oh, it's it sort of washes off in the shower now. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. So uh, you've you've photographed a whole lot of amazing things in Australia. I mean, you've photographed people's struggles in, in the Northern Territory. You've photographed the aftermath of disasters like Black Sunday and Cyclone Yasi. But it kind of, I think your big break was by photographing the Cronulla riots. I suppose so, yeah. If, if something good 
came of that day. Um, I suppose it, it did for me in that um, it, it was something that I w- was able to photograph that um, that attracted attention outside Australia. And the attention of Time magazine, no less, yeah. which is pretty huge. Yeah. It's not a small deal. No, certainly not at the time. And, and you know, being... Um, being paid for the privilege was, mm. yeah, it was a, a double shock. They're, they're actually quite shocking photos, even though they're not, I mean, they're not often very violent. It's not like you, you're getting, you know, people bunching stuff, but like just men who are just so angry and just hyped up and like their necks are just bulging because they're just like mid-scream. It's quite shocking. So how did that how did that day start for you? How did you kind of, you know, get in the midst of all of those riots? Well, there'd been a bit of publicity in the week before. Um, it's sort of well known now that Alan Jones and others sort of beat it up and arguably encouraged what was to come. So I made my way to Cronulla um, early on that Sunday morning and turned up to what looked like a you know an Australia Day barbecue. There was uh, a street party. There was you know barbecues on the streets. Um, People doing burnouts in the you know the main street of Cronulla by the beach, um, lots of Australian flags and singlets and bogans and um, uh, and it you know it was it was a hot day, it's typical sticky summer day, and everyone was of course drinking and drinking pretty heavily, and it didn't take long for uh, uh, well the descent into the maelstrom, dare mm. I say? Yeah, yeah. and. Do you remember there being like a particular turning point? Is there a call to action? Does someone have a microphone or does everyone just run off and... I think people were looking for a, a cause that day. Like they, everyone was so wound up and they were looking for a fight. And eventually some poor um, guys came in on a train from, from the Western suburbs. I think they were Lebanese guys. And, you know, I don't know what planet they'd live, been living on because... They obviously didn't know what had been kind of unofficially planned that day, but they found themselves in the middle of this crowd, and this happened on a couple of occasions that day, but on the first occasion, um, yeah, this crowd just surrounded these two defenceless guys and and sat on them, and and that was, you know, at that point, they'd sort of got a taste for blood, the crowd, and um, it it only got worse from there. What's it like taking photos in that kind of a situation? Is it fairly easy or...? Do you mean uh, morally, ethically or Well, yeah, physically? I mean, you know, physically it seems like you get jostled a bit. Ethically, it seems like there's a few questions there. I mean... Of course, yeah. On all those angles. Yeah, it, it's always it's always a question. And um, certainly uh, in, in that particular situation, um, there was very little I could personally have done. Um, there were actually a couple of guys who were trying to defend um, the, the, the two uh, guys at the at the centre of the attack. Um, but, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, I'm a, I'm a photographer and if, if I'm there, there's no, sorry, there's no point in me being there if I'm not taking photos. Um, I'm just as good as the, you know, person sitting in Surrey Hills commenting on why someone isn't helping. Um, while I sip on the latte. So is there a point at which you sling your camera over your back and intervene? I mean, has there ever been a point for you in your career where you felt the need to intervene? Yeah, um, not not um, not in a violent situation, but certainly, you know, helping. Um, 
helping people, um, you know, in, just in small ways. I've never had um, these sort of life-changing um, moments like, you know, have been made f- famous by the a picture in... Um, uh, I'm going to get the country wrong. I was going to say Rwanda, of the um, the vulture and the, the small starving child. Oh, no. um, I've never been confronted mm. with that. Um, and, you know, I, I would hope that my humanity... Um, one out over professionalism, um, if, if it ever did occur. Yeah, I hope so too. And so, you know, more on the Australian front, you actually, you say, you say you tried to document the Bra Boys. Was it because of the riots that you felt drawn to the Bra Boys? Are they kind of, you know, part of that machismo that you were kind of looking at a little bit? Yeah, definitely. The, I mean, the Bra Boys tried to disassociate themselves with the with the Cronulla riots and um, I think they were justified in doing so but um, there's no doubt that the Bra Boys are well known for their uh, the tribal way in which they you know they protect their their territory and um, I think that's very much what was at play in Cronulla um, so it was something that I was I was interested to pursue and I I moved from where I was living at the time in Curl Curl on the northern beaches to Maroubra to to really try and um, you know get get underneath the skin and and be a part of it. And do you think you were successful? No. What what stood in the way of you and and the oh, Bra Boys being well, documented? You know the Bra Boys is, isn't like a a gang or a, an official body where there's a you know one person that has final say on everything. Um, so every time I would, uh, you know, be with a bunch of them, I'd have to answer to every single one of them. And um, a lot of them were very anti what I was doing because they didn't have control over um, what I would publish in the end. And um, a lot of them had had bad experiences with media before. A lot of them were doing things that they wouldn't want uh, highlighted, you know, by photographs. Mm-hmm. And eventually, um, you know, one of the more senior bra boys just told me to piss off and made it clear that um, I should take heed. Oh, that sounds like a threat. Yeah, it was a threat. I mean, there are a lot of threatening guys amongst them. And I mean, as a a group, I think, you know, they really amount to a a bunch of bullies. Um, Whereas one-on-one, a lot of them are are quite reasonable guys. Um, But, you know, like what happened in Cronulla, you get a, a big bunch of uh, men together, um, it can often override uh, individual um, morals and better judgment, I suppose. Absolutely. And we've got a track to take from that time by astronomy class. Now, now, what is astronomy class? Astronomy class is a, what do you call it, a hip-hop band a hip-hop outfit a crew a crew i don't know i don't have the cool lingo (laughs) um but they're a group that um i became familiar with because of the guy i was living with and who has become my best mate since um uh the unofficial mayor of maroubra blondie um (laughs) is his name and um he is a mad aussie hip-hop fan and um i moved in with him and um, had absolutely no luck with um, putting PJ on the on the record player at the time, and it was just it was Aussie hip hop all the way and at top volume. So I listened to it so much that um, eventually I I 
I started to really, um, well, astronomy class really started to grow on me. It's, um, you know, the herds, Aussie Butler, and a couple of a couple of these elephant tracks guys. So more political characters. Very political, yeah. and a lot of their tracks were really resonated with me um, post Cronulla riots and um, sort of John Howard era politics, and it, um, you know, it, it it bridged the gap for me. On FBI 94.5, my guest today is Andrew Quilty. My name's Ash Berdebez, and you are listening to Out of the Box. Here's astronomy class and a track called Fight Club, which has a language warning on it. A big one. You asshole, you've rigged us upstairs, haven't you? All you do is tie me hands, you lie, you cheat, you're a fucking disgrace. <laughs> On your this is a fight club. Come strap with the right gloves and light one for those cats that had to fight us for a lump sum. So pump one fist in the air if you ain't done yet. Well, some pick it. In fact, they're shocked at a blockade. Now, who stole the soul? We must be on cruise control. Who's to know what the next day's headlines hold? Breadline stays paper thin. Truth is, there's no escaping it. If your little nephew's favor slips when he asks you manage it, to change his shift and he's made to quit. Save your freedom while you have it. Just have a barbecue and argue with your mate just out of habit. What well, you know who fits through that gap in the back fence? The one deporting Aussies who speak with foreign accents and then says the workers keep your backs bent. That they got your suburb on lockdown? Shit's no accident. An ill plot and we'd be watching them hatch it. Catch glued to Terry Hatcher. Their leader's more corrupt than Maggie Thatcher. We need a man of stature or the woman of stature or some poor bastard with half a heart for that matter. Still never heard that this the clatter of an empty shell. Still waiting to wake up, waiting for that rebel yell. No one's saying it's alright. You copper pounding, docking and weaving. Last round rings. This is a fight club. Come strapped with the right gloves and light one. For those cats that had to fight us for a lump sum. So pump one fist in the air if you ain't done yet. It's like that's the sound of the police. You bring a sniffer dog to the club or the beach, and they double their reach every time we disturb the peace. Catch 22, make you wonder what their purpose is. Their position, dodgy commissions and inquests. You set the mood of the time, he who invests. Lay back, relax, and ingest a bit of pill. It really comes down to if you want or if you will. Cause there's a queue around the corner about a block long. No change at the top, though we admit we got a lot wrong. It's so hard to get good intelligence these days And you'll get locked away if we cannot pronounce your name The crazy thing is that as a skip they abide me And if I was a Muslim, my mother could have find me Gotta speak from the heart like sleep, child of the cedar My contribution will make it wild in the speaker I couldn't give a fuck if I was preaching to believers So for one, I never preach, and spat it how I seen it So polish up your knuckle dusters We don't trust them and they don't trust us When there ain't no justice This is a fight club, come strapped with the right gloves and light one for those cats that had to fight us for a lump sum so pump one fist in the air if you ain't done yet this is a fight club come strap with the right gloves and light one for those cats that had to fight us for a lump sum so pump one fist in the air if you ain't done yet Sick. 
pretty dark stuff there. What do you reckon? Uh, yeah, it just makes me angry, I guess, in a good way. <laughs> he looks really angry, angry right now. Yeah, Andrew Quilty, <laughs> just furious, flight into a rage over that last song, which is fine. It's cool. Uh, so a moment ago we were talking about your big break with uh, Time, but, you know, that was for the Cronulla riots. And then much, much later on when you are in the US, you had another kind of breakthrough with Time, but this one was on a different bit of a platform, I guess. So you made the uh, the first transition to Instagram. Mm. You were originally against using Instagram for photojournalism, but I kind of want to know why. Yeah, I was, and I think it was just because I didn't I didn't know what it was, and I hadn't experimented with it. And you know, as is easy to do, um, you can be an naysayer about things you don't actually understand. So um, yeah, basically, I um, I found my well I put myself in the path of Hurricane Sandy and uh, made some phone calls and uh, just casually <laughs> yeah, as you do and um, ended up getting a, a call back from time um, saying yeah we'd like you to be one of five people covering this storm on Instagram and I was you know <laughs> was, they probably thought they'd lost the connection on the phone there for a few seconds and then I was like yeah sure I'll do it <laughs> Well, you don't say no to Time Magazine. No, exactly. No, (laughs) sold out in the in a heartbeat. But um, yeah. So I'd never even used it. I'd never even really taken photos with my phone. And um, but I um, I gave it a go anyway. And it was it wasn't the easiest sort of training ground with with Instagram trying to negotiate. As in a bit of a windy one. A windy one, and you know, not a lot of um, connectivity, that sort of thing. So. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. So how did you actually, like, what's the scene like if you're actually, you know, fumbling around with your with your phone and trying to get photos up? How are you doing this? Oh, well, there was um, there was a fire station which I was sort of basing myself out of um, on the Jersey Shore and they had a generator with Wi-Fi and things. Um, so I literally would go out um, in the morning, first light, run around. I literally I borrowed bicycles, got lifts on boats, um, you know, ran along beaches and um, hitchhiked to get to places and then would do the same thing um, to get back to the fire station and use their Wi-Fi and upload a couple of pictures and then go and do it again. Um, Was it at all scary being in that scenario? I mean, like, were you were you obviously not in the thick of the storm because it, you know, was the second most costly storm in US history. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Were you... Were you in a dangerous situation there or is it kind of... Well, I, I kind of felt comfortable because I was with guys who were very comfortable in that situation with the, the fire department. But, um, I, yeah, I wasn't quite in the centre of the storm. I was about 40 or 50 miles off the the centre, but that was just my bad weather-eating skills. I probably would have been there <laughs> had, I, had I been able to see that in advance. So your, that was your first taste of not not your first taste that was not your first taste of the u.s Mm-mm. you had been on a big road trip yep. before yeah on the western side of the country the western side of the country yeah why did you did you have a particular interest in the u.s or is it just just found yourself there yeah no i'd uh, i'd been reading a lot of american um novels and like john steinbeck and um you know listening to dylan and woody guthrie and things and so the, you know, the west western united states always had this draw for me or had had done since um since those those books um and i also had a um uh, uncle who was very close 
to me um, living in Mexico. We, so we um, we joined up in the northwest of the U.S. and made our way down the coast and then across through Arizona and New Mexico and Texas and then down into Mexico and spent the next four months driving around camping throughout Mexico. It sounds like a whole lot of fun. Mm. But um, we've got a song to take in a moment from the Dodos, who are fantastic. Was it really, was it all fun? I mean, it sounds like a pretty crazy time to be going around camping everywhere. Yeah, I mean, the, Mexico wasn't the safest place to be at the time, but and I suppose I was also going through a bit of a tumultuous time emotionally myself. And, um, you know, it's, on one hand, I was having these amazing um, experiences, seeing new places, meeting new people, um, you know, having these great opportunities for photography. Um, at the same time as I was, you know, dealing with a lot of sort of heavy emotional stuff and I'd, um, you know, as so often does for, I think, you know, most people can relate to this, music often, um, you know, br brings that out, whatever the emotion is you're feeling, um, whether it be a, a good one or a bad one. And um, I there was one song that I would always throw to when I really wanted to just bring on a, a sort of depressed moment. And, uh, yeah, I remember one point driving through um, Michoacan in sort of central Mexico, and I was just, it was a beautiful afternoon, but I was driving along and I was feeling lonely, and um, I remember I was just crying my eyes out. I was, I put this song on repeat and played it like five or six times, and um, then all of a sudden I came across this, uh, a, a procession, it was a wedding procession in this little village, um, um, all the men and women in their beautiful traditional garb and banging drums and blowing horns and, you know, the, the married couple up the front and I, you know, pulled the car over and jumped out and took my camera and just followed this, this procession for an hour or two and, you know, it was a, sort of very indicative of my up and down state at the time. So, yeah, it's the, the dodos. With winter. With winter. On FBR 94.5, my guest today is Andrew Quilty.
on through what a gorgeous song it was wasn't it i got my emotions on you did you got your emotions on you were tearing up there for a minute i was tearing up a bit there i hope that's cool with you and uh my guest for the past hour has been andrew quilty had a glorious time likewise absolutely it's been great it's the best uh playlist i've ever heard See, I don't know what all those expats in Afghanistan were thinking when they cleared the floor during your DJ set. You are off the chain. But yeah, we've actually run out of time for the hour. I could have probably had a yarn with you for the next like couple of hours, but we don't have time for that. And so we've got to take our last song. And how about we go with the Brian Jonestown Massacre? What do you, how do you feel about that? Yeah, why not? All right. <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show today. And I'd also like to thank Samira and Jess Hamilton for uh, doing a great deal of research and Sasha Rosen for being a super producer, as always. And if you want to listen back to the show on demand on FBI or you can podcast this show, actually, and go to our programs and playlist page, it'll be pretty easy to find. And what's what's your next move, Andrew? I'd like to know. Um, I'll be back in Afghanistan in mid-January, I think. Back at home with all the other expats, with the roses and the hammocks and the And the dogs and, and the... the... Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a nice time. All right, thank you so much. Thank you, Ash. And play.
mistaken Tell me quick as you can Because we're so Out of the Box. Meet people through their music. With Ash Bertabez on FBI.